0: And being patient. And that's something which I used to call the in-between moments of life. And you find there's a lot of your time, many hours, you add them all up, probably days and weeks. What we call the in-between moments. You know, you're sitting down, you're waiting for the talk to happen, you're just in the queue waiting to get the the food and because I get my food delivered to teacher's cottage, I don't actually stand in the, is it a buffet service you have now for breakfast and lunch? Are there two lines like there should be in good temples? You know what the first line is for? The first line in a Buddhist temple or retreat center is for for the ordinary person, we call it self-service. For those who are enlightened, it has to be a different line, no (laughs) self-service. I remember seeing articles on this and there was also, again I, I don't know if it is still there, but I hope it is and if it's gone, I don't know where it's gone because was such a lovely Buddhist cartoon and just now three or four uh, pictures, drawings and the first one was of this uh, retreatant and he was walking in to see the teacher with a big sign and written on the sign, I want happiness it said on the sign. And he was very miserable and very upset. And it's like maybe everyone here, do you come here because you want happiness? I want happiness. So how do you get that? How do you solve that problem of wanting happiness? So the teacher said, first mistake. He took his little sign and scrubbed out the eye. That's the first mistake. I. So the sign then said, want happiness. He was still miserable. So the teacher got out a little pen and scrubbed out the want. And the sign only said happiness. There, that's the solution. <laughs> and I thought that was a little brilliant cartoon. You see, I want is a problem. And to make that really clear, and somebody was just asking me about you know what is enlightenment and I'll go back to the meditation afterwards but you now what is enlightenment? And you find that so many people will have so many different ideas and they can't all be right. And in fact, quite often people say some crazy things thinking that's enlightenment. I remember one of the Buddhist magazines, Inquiring Mind, in the United States. They said they're doing a whole magazine on enlightenment, and could I send in a contribution? Because I was a well-known Buddhist monk, and so the contribution only took me about 20 minutes to write on the computer, because it was fun. I always notice when I have to be serious, it always takes much longer. And my article was uh, titled, Who Wants to Become Enlightened? And apparently, because I don't watch TV, it was based on a, a quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But this was more important, Who Wants to Be Enlightened? And so I had different contestants. You know, one was. Uh, if I remember it correctly, it was uh, Miss Anna Gami <laughs> representing Theravada, My was Amy Thaba, representing by <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the other names were. And the way to find out the winner of the competition who wants to be enlightened, uh, first of all I mentioned the prize. The prize was a solid gold meditation cushion. <laughs> Delightful to look at, but hell to sit on. <laughs> and there's was making some points there. Do we really want comfort or do we really want what impresses other people? And then they had these different um, <laughs> contests. And I think for the last two, there was a Zen monk and uh, a psychologist were in The in the last two and you had to show a psychic power. And so the Zen monk <laughs> meditated deeply, he rose up into the air, and the live audience, they were just so impressed, actually, you to see somebody levitating. So they all clapped and cheered, and the poor Zen monk was disturbed from his uh, concentration by all the clapping, and he fell to the ground and killed himself. <laughs> It was all, you know, it's typical adjunct Bob, stupid jokes, <laughs> and eventually the psychologist and psychotherapist, you know, won because she was the only one found wanting. <laughs> it was just a satire on how people want to become enlightened or think they know what enlightenment is. And I sent it really quickly. I was just having fun, enjoying myself, and I sent it to these people and I said, look, I know you're going to reject this, it's not what you really want, but I'm sending it anyway, I'll send a proper article sort of uh, this afternoon sometime. And I got the email straight back, no, we like this, thank you, can we publish it? So that's my article. (laughs) But never think that humour is not profound. Sometimes the most deepest teachings can be conveyed by a story which everyone can understand. I do re- realize, because I remember this when I was a lay Buddhist myself, sometimes we would go to these lectures at university on Buddhism. And I was at Cambridge, there's some really sort of big brains there small minds, but big brains. <laughs> Sorry. But quite frankly, there's some truth in that. Because I was a Buddhist at university, I didn't really know too many other Buddhists. And so uh, I had a few friends from different religions. I thought that was good to be able to hang out not just with other Buddhists, which was probably just myself, but also with people from different religions. We had some great arguments, you know, not with any ill will. In those days you could have an argument with a person and just uh, at the end of the argument, you know, whoever uh, won the argument had to you know, pay for the dinner or something that evening. So it was all just keeping your friendship very strong. So one of my friends, he was a Christian, and he said that he was going to the local, uh, it was like a hospital for those who had mental impairments. And they were going to volunteer, because that's, you know, that's what the Christians are very strong on. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's embarrassing me. And they knew I was a Buddhist and say, can I go along as well as a Buddhist? I didn't want to go, I was just uh, flying the flag of Buddhism. We Buddhists are as good as you Christians. That's all it was—just pride. But I went there, and where we were volunteering was in a, a was an occupational therapy unit for those with Down's syndrome. And you went there in the afternoon and just hung out, supported those with the Down syndrome, did little tasks together, and the two Christians who went with me they dropped out after a couple of weeks. And I kept going for two years. And I kept going there, not because I had to. It wasn't because I was a Buddhist and trying to show off. I went on going there because I enjoyed that so much. And I learned so much as well. How, you know, first of all, not to judge people, because I was stunned by the what we now call emotional intelligence of those people who had Down Syndrome. And to give an example, something I will never forget, when I went there in the afternoon to Fullbourne Hospital just outside of Cambridge, I went there in the afternoon, as so I was walking from the bus you know, into the unit, just one of the Down Syndrome men saw me, Rushed towards me, ran, and gave me a big hug. I said, "What are you doing that for?" He said, "There's something wrong, isn't there?" They saw it straight away that the night before I'd broken up with a girlfriend. No one else could see that, but this Down syndrome man had seen straight away that I was suffering, and spotted it and just came up and gave a big hug to me. I always remember that. His emotional intelligence was huge. Sometimes they didn't know how to string a sentence together. Sometimes they weren't capable of passing exams or anything like that. But there was still something inside of them which all those people in Cambridge could not see. He could see straight through me. I was a stupid one, and to emphasize that, after a couple of years there, that they trusted me so much in the unit, I've been going there for such a long time, that they asked me to take one group in the first part of the afternoon. Because it was England, they always had tea in the afternoon, a little break, a cup of tea. I always thought that was a very wonderful thing about English culture. When you break for a cup of tea in the afternoon, you have a rest, even at work, no matter what work you're doing. And that allows you to relax your brain and get your energy back and see things fresh after the tea break. If you can't have a tea break, break, have a meditation break. Just a break between all that heavy work that you do. And don't ever think that you're losing out, you're wasting time. Because a few minutes break in meditation, you make time. You're more efficient after having a rest. But anyway, back to the uh, Down Syndrome unit. I went uh, into this first group, the first session, had a cup of tea, went to the second group, just by myself, because I could look after them without any help. And they totally deceived me. Because after the second group, time was finished, the head of the departments with the other sort of uh, occupational trainees, uh, trainee managers, whatever you might call them, they said, oh, can you come into the, the other room again? When I went into the other room, all these Down syndrome people, they'd all met, got together, and they all had presents for me. They'd been making them that afternoon. And I I hadn't suspected a thing, these beautiful little cards and other little gifts. And they said, "Uh, you've been coming here longer than anybody else they could remember volunteering. And they wanted to show their appreciation because the final exams were starting, they said, next week. So can I accept all these things? They realized, they said, it's my last day. But what happened after accepting all those beautiful gifts, which meant a lot to me. Then afterwards I humbly said, actually, my final exams don't start for another 10 days. Can I please come <laughs> this week as well? <laughs> and I wanted to come, I got so much joy and happiness and understanding by going to that group every Thursday afternoon. And it really showed me just how if you can extend, you know, your circle and investigate places which you think you're helping others, but you find out you know, you're the one who's being helped. And if ever you you think or you assess that I've got some emotional intelligence that I can understand some of you, it is because of the training which I got at university. In the a unit looking after Down syndrome people. They taught me so much. And it's how you can have that kindness, non-judgmental, non-discriminatory attitude towards those who are different than you are. And that becomes not something you're supposed to do, it just becomes natural to your character. one of the reasons why that when you started, there was a call I got when I first came to Perth, and it was the gentleman who was calling said, I'm in Bunbury High Security Prison. He said, I'm a prisoner. And first of all, he said, you wouldn't believe how many months it's taken to make this call. All the permissions I needed. And he said, we want to invite one of you monks to come and teach meditation at the prison. And sometimes you can tell if a person is being honest or they're trying to deceive you. And my impression this fellow you know, was so honest, he was really trying hard to get a monk to teach meditation in prison. So I immediately accepted. Even though it was a long way, and I didn't know how it would turn out. But, you know, eventually, well, first of all, when I started a story, I got to tell some of the important parts of the story. I went down there, and uh, it's usually an evening session. And the first session I went to to teach meditation at Bunbury Prison, about 100 people turned out more than you you people here, about a hundred. And they said that's almost the whole, uh, they call it muster, the whole uh, prisoner population in that jail. There's only about four or five didn't go, and that's because they were sick or they were in in some other sorts of problems. But almost everyone, when I saw that, this hall packed with prisoners, all wanting to learn meditation, of course I was impressed and inspired and I really wanted to do the best for them. And I started teaching them meditation. Only after about three or four minutes they were very impatient. And one of the men put his hand up and said, Can I ask a question? I later found that this man was one of the leaders of you know the gangs in the in the prison. He actually became a very good, <laughs> good friend over the years. I remember him very much. And uh, he was the one who later on told me that, he said, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry at all about your security inside these prisons. You know, we all know you and we, we respect you a lot. And If anybody tried to rape you and the men were targets, for rape inside his prisons, some of the prisoners had nothing to lose, they're going to be there for such a long time. He said if anybody tried that, a few of us in the front would get to them first of all. And I knew he meant that, he was a very big guy and he was uh, incredibly friendly towards me. So I always felt safe in there, but at this prison he was the one who asked the first question about meditation. He was asking it on behalf of most of the prisoners who'd come to the class, and it was, is it true that through meditation you can learn how to fly over walls? (laughs) It was a prison! (laughs) I'm not making this up, that's what he said. Is it true you can fly over walls when you meditate? (laughs) And I had to be honest, a limitation is incredibly rare, but it does happen sometimes. But only very, very rarely. It's not an easy thing to teach you. And So we accepted that, and the next week when I went, only about three people turned up to my class. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what they wanted. They wanted an easy way to escape. Imagine you just sit down there and just fly over walls. <laughs> anyway. The reason I told that story was I got one of the best, please excuse me, I'm, I'm not trying to praise myself but just praise what happens when you meditate and you get the emotional intelligence as well as just you know the nice deep meditations, I got one of the best compliments which I've ever had and that was from a prison officer, one of the big prisons here in Perth and he said, um, can you please come back to my prison to teach? That was the the old, they used to call it Canning Vale Jail. They always give them new names. I forget what it's called now, Acacia or something. But anyway, he said, can you come back to teach at my jail?" He said, I'm about to retire, and I want you to come back. And I said, look, I'm an abbot now. I've got to go traveling to Singapore to teach retreats and to Malaysia and other places, you've got lots of other monasteries to look after. got to go to England to make sure that uh, Venerable Chandra is well looked after. Is that true? Yeah. (laughs) And so I said, I'll send somebody else. He said, no, I want you. And of course what happens next is they say, why me? He said, I'm not a Buddhist, but I've noticed, he said, "And all the years I've worked in this prison, that everybody who goes to your class, when they're released, never comes back. I don't know what you've been doing. I want you to do more of it. Please come back. And again, that was just a compliment which really went to my heart. You know, I don't get much pay in this job but I get a lot of job satisfa- satisfaction. And so I asked, the, asked him why me and he said that's why and of course afterwards I tried to explore why. Why is it when you can go into a jail, talk to prisoners, and some really rough prisoners, why is it that you can talk to them and they never go back again. Even some of these little stories, which I'm sure you all know about two bad bricks in a war. There's one prisoner over in I think he's they may probably been released now. He was in there for murder, convicted of murdering somebody. And usually at the end of the sentence, or when they're pretty safe, they can go and stay in carnage prison farm up the road here. And Apparently, the other monks who had gone up there were saying, He read that book and was very impressed with the story about the two bad bricks. Just because there's two crooked bricks, it doesn't mean it's a bad wall. He was going around saying, It was only two murders. Well, <laughs> 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 that worked for him. He didn't think he was a murderer. And you've just done two murders. There's a different thing about being a criminal and someone who's done a crime. It's like a thief is someone who always has to be a thief. They're branded for life. You're a thief. You know that sometimes people steal, I don't know why they do that. A lot of time here in Australia, because of drugs, they don't know really what they're up to. And you give them a bit of confidence and respect. And after a while, when they get released, they never do it again. It was just giving people respect. That was what was important. And just like with mental health, I'll go back to enlightenment in a minute. <laughs> Please excuse me. Like even with mental health, I always recall you know, being asked to give a presentation at a, a mental health week, they called it here in Western Australia, I was in the the Convention Centre and I'm always happy to help and they wanted me to do a presentation to what they call here the clients of mental health, not the doctors, psychologists, carers or whatever, but to the people who were um, being helped and cared for. And when I went in there, they ne- many of these had never seen a Buddhist monk before. And so, after the talk, a couple of them came out and said, we come first of all to thank you and to apologize to you. And I said, why apologize? And please excuse my language. Those of you who know English will understand this. and know English English. They said, when you came in to give a talk and you went on that stage, we thought, who the hell is this wanker? <laughs> Meaning me. It's a very nasty thing to say about, in England about someone you don't respect. <laughs> and I hadn't heard that word for years. You know, when I was in England, I could hear that word and I thought, that's really funny. And he said, we apologize, we didn't know who you were, we thought you were one of these other professor types who was going to tell us what the theories are. He said, you came up there on that stage and you made us cry and laugh. And at the same time. And the story which really hit them was you know, the old story, which I'm sure many of you have heard before, but these great stories, please know that I've heard this story more than you have. (laughs) Every time I tell it. And I don't mind a talk, it inspires me, it's true. And I said that I'm a forest monk. I live in forests, here in Australia, and in other parts of the world. I grew up in the forest, the jungles of Thailand. And I've noticed something, that in the forests, even in this forest, there's no such thing as a perfectly straight tree. Every tree in this forest is bent, twisted, crooked. It's had many of the branches torn off by the winds. The bark is scarred by the bushfires, which is part of nature here in Australia. And all the leaves in the trees they're not all green, some are brown, some are being uh, eaten by um, the little animals, whatever it is, which live in the forests here. They're all imperfect, and many are damaged. So I said, I've never seen a perfect tree in the forest, I've only seen damaged crooked trees. That's the truth, you go and have a walk and see if you can find a perfect tree. They're all bent, damaged. So I said, if you are damaged by life, by some uh, mental illness or physical illness, or you've had some trauma, please know that you belong. You're part of the forest called humanity. You're not excluded. And number two, if you're really bent and really damaged and extremely crooked, you're one of the most beautiful trees in that forest. That's true. In these forests, I really like the crooked trees. The ones which are bent, which one was the are all over the place. <laughs> They're the ones which are truly beautiful. And so straight away, they realized they didn't need to hide. They weren't excluded. They were part of nature. And sometimes, some of the most beautiful parts of nature. You see, that made us cry and laugh. People always wanted to cure us and make us fit into some sort of ideal. They always thought there was something wrong with us. We started to believe that ourselves, There's something wrong with us say no, please stay as you are, you're part of life, thank you for being who you are. And of course, that type of acceptance was also what I gave to the prisoners in jail, what I give to you. Some of you are great meditators, some of you are hopeless meditators, I've been teaching you for years. (laughs) I just wonder what, why I keep doing it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So anyway, I did promise to talk about enlightenment <laughs> to, to keep my precepts and online. So first of all, it's people have weird ideas of what enlightenment is. And again you can describe things but when you describe something which is so distant from somebody, they can't really get their heads around it, you're wasting your breath. So instead, there was this wonderful story. I did write, uh, uh, publish a story in one of the books, and it's a very impressive story. Because it says many of the things about the different people in life and why you do things and it was the story of the five children playing the wishing game. And the rules of the wishing game are, you all have a wish each, and the one who comes up with the best wish wins the game. So the first kid, and always remember any game, don't be the first, because afterwards you know you can learn uh, it's the old story of the, uh, the monk, uh, the priest, and the Jewish rabbi, who would meet regularly to get some interfaith harmony. And they started by just having, they couldn't have dinner together because the monk can't eat in the evening, so they had lunch, but that was really hard because the monk has to eat before noon. So then they started trying something else. They started having some games they were going to, play, just to get to know each other. And that was also difficult, so they started playing cards together, which was very easy, just in somebody's room, it's easy to play cards. To make it more interesting, you know, they made it poker, and just put a few uh, coins on, you know, to bet. And I thought that would actually give them something they're struggling for and they could get some understanding of each other. But in the place they were doing that, it was illegal to gamble so someone uh, told the police and these three religious leaders were arrested and had to go into court on trial the jewish rabbi the christian priest and the buddhist monk and i said never be the first so the first person was asked was the christian priest he said no uh, Reverend Sir, were you gambling? Now you're a priest, so and it'd be really, I, I can't accept that you're going to lie to me, so please, just say it truthfully, yes or no, were you gambling? And really quickly, the priest looked up into the sky and muttered, please Jesus forgive me, and said no, I wasn't gambling. He looked up in the sky so quickly, they, no one noticed that. That was his trick. Okay, you can go. Then they asked a Jewish rabbi, were you gambling? And he did an old trick, I remember, I learned at school. I hope you don't know it in Singapore. <laughs> I'm sure you do. He put his hands behind his back and crossed his fingers. Do you have that in Singapore? You cross your fingers and then, it's like a lie but you can't admit it. You do that? yeah. Okay, no, I mean so. you do that. Okay, be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when the kids, yeah, but that's what he did. And say, so, okay, not gambling, you can go. And then last one was the monk. And so the monk realized he can't look up into the heaven and say, Jesus, forgive me. And the the judge was getting a bit suspicious. Said please keep your hands in front of you so I can see them. So, venerable monk, were you gambling? And he responded honestly, with whom? (laughs) Okay, so he got off too. But anyway, the five monks playing the wishing game. (laughs) I will get around to it sooner or later. uh, So not monks, so the kids playing the wishing game. So the first kid, if you had a wish, what would it be? And so his wish was for the latest computer game. Now usually I would ask someone before I tell this story, you know, what's the latest computer game? I haven't got a clue. I don't know what real computer games are, as they didn't have those things when I was a kid. The latest computer game, okay, good wish the second kid, if you had a wish, what would it be? And because the second kid had heard the first kid, he could actually think and clearly get a much better wish than the latest computer game. He said, if I had a wish, I would wish for my own computer game shop. If I owned it, I can always get the latest computer game, the next computer game when it comes out. So owning this shop which uh, sells computer games is much, much better. So then they asked the third kid, and this girl said, if I had a wish, and she was much smarter than the first two boys, if I had a wish, I would wish for $10 billion US. It's a lot of money. And the first thing I would buy is my own computer shop, computer game shop, but that wouldn't cost 10 billion, and then with, this is uh, US dollars, it's not Indonesian rupiah. (laughs) (laughs) And then with my second wish, no, not my second wish, sorry, first uh, 10 billion dollars US, having got my own computer game shop, the next thing which I would buy is my own school. Because the problem is, even if I have free computer games, my mummy won't let me play with it until I've done my homework. And if I own the school and pay the principal and all the staff, I can soon arrange to have no homework and still get top marks in the school every year. And once I graduate from my own school, then I can buy my own university which I think is what Mr. Trump did in it, Trump University, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> and I buy my own university and I can give myself an honorary degree and that will make my mummy happy and I can spend all day and night playing computer games. And with $10 billion, anything else which I need, whenever I need it, I'll have plenty of money to buy it. Beat that wish. That's a pretty big wish, you know, a fortune and the fourth child said, I can beat that very easily. If I had a wish, I would wish for three wishes. That's a wish. And for My first wish, I'll have the computer game shop. My second wish, I'll have $10 billion US. And for my third wish, I'll have three more wishes. <laughs> that way I could go on forever beat that, infinity of wishes, and the fourth kid, easily beat that. The fourth kid said, fifth, Fifth, okay, fifth kid, yeah, okay, I can't count. (laughs) The fifth kid said, if I had a wish, I wish I was so content I never needed any more wishes ever again and they all agree that he won the wishing game. That was the Buddha explaining what enlightenment is. So content you don't need any more wishes. The end of desire and craving and wanting. The fourth kid, infinity of wishes, that's called power. When you're the dictator, of the local country, or you're the spiritual director of the Buddhist society. (laughs) You can get whatever you want just by saying it. Sometimes people think that that is happiness. It's not. There's no end to things you might want. That's called the myth of power. It explains why. I've seen so many times very wealthy people who don't need to work again in their lives. They decide to become uh, presidents or prime ministers of their country. Why do you want to do that? You can relax and be at ease forever with all the money you have. They want to do that to try and attain the infinity of wishes granted with power. It's much more, uh, we might call attractive than just wealth. The best person of all is that person who is so at ease, so at peace, you never need any more wishes ever again. That's what enlightenment is the end of desire, freedom. I thought that was a very wonderful description. It's very close. If anyone thinks we just make these things up, it doesn't refer to what the Buddha said. This was actually Sariputta's description of what is enlightenment. The end of wanting, the end of ill will, the end of delusion. All those things going. And that's where actually you can find out who's enlightened and who is not enlightened. There was once, you may know this story also, the story of this monk in China a long time ago, who, he'd done his basic training in a monastery, and he asked the teacher, you know, there's a little island uninhabited, only a small one, in the middle of a lake, not far from this monastery. Can I please go there? I build a nice little cootie for myself there, and because it was uh, uh, no, so. And what I what I would like to do is, if you can send over just once a week, just no simple food that I can eat, and just for once a week and anything else which I happen to need, with an attendant and leave me there alone to meditate. And the head of the monastery, the abbot, said, well that's a a reasonable request. So it was arranged. The monk went over there, built himself a very simple hut, very quickly, and an attendant, a monastery attendant, would row over to the island once a week with some food, very simple food, some rice and beans or whatever, and anything else which he needed. And that's the way he lived there, almost in perfect solitude for about three years. And after three years of living uh, and meditating so much, this monk thought he was enlightened. So now what should he do? So when the attendant came the next time, the monk asked him, can you please, next time you come over in one week send over a quill, some ink, and a parchment. I want to write some calligraphy." So one week later, when the attendant arrived, he had to scroll a find parchment, some ink, and a quill pen. And then the monk meditated very deeply. And after a particularly deep meditation, He wrote this poem in four lines The diligent monk alone for three years is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. And it's even one of the chants which we do in the Ratana Sutta. uh, Is where they say just like a post firmly planted in the ground is no longer shaken by the winds. It's a simile which has been used often, even in Theravada, of enlightenment. So it was his claim to be enlightened. And having written it, he rolled it up, put a little ribbon around it, and when the attendant came the week later, he gave it to the attendant and said, please deliver this to the abbot, the head monk of the monastery. And then he relaxed and rested, knowing that the abbot of the monastery would now recognize he had an enlightened monk on the island. When the attendant monk came back one week later, he had a scroll, just like his scroll, he said, this is from the abbot. And so the monk, really excited, opened up the scroll, And so it was his scroll, it was his original graffiti, but now across the first line, the diligent monk, the abbot had had written in red ink, fart, F-A-R-T, (laughs) fart. Alone for three years. It's written on there, FART in capital letters. And on the third line, it's no longer moved. It's written, FART in capital letters underlined by the four worldly winds. And this time a big F-A-R-T underlined with three exclamation marks after it and that was on his calligraphy which took him three years to get the the depth of meditation to be able to write and this monk was so upset and angry that stupid abbot has spoiled the calligraphy of someone who's just been enlightened that calligraphy, that scroll should be put up in some museum somewhere and he's ruined it, the stupid abbot so he ran to the shore and he managed to call the attendant, come over quick I need to go and see that abbot. And so the attendant rode him over the lake and went to the monastery to see the abbot. And this monk slammed the scroll of paper on the desk in front of the abbot and he said, what have you done to this, you know, my claim of enlightenment? And then the abbot slowly stood up, opened up the scroll and read out the poem which the monk had written. The diligent monk alone for three years is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. Yet, said the monk, the abbot, four little farts have blown you clean across the lake. (laughs) It's a gross story, but it worked. It it taught that monk he wasn't in line. So we had to roll over to the, to the hermitage and carry on meditating. So, so that is usually the way, if anybody claims to be enlightened, we usually <laughs> abuse them or something. So, I mean, not sort of physically. No, if Venerable Chandler came up and said, I'm fully enlightened off this retreat, I would say, I'll oh, look. You know, women can't become enlightened, it's impossible. That's not true of course, it's just that I'm saying that to try and upset her. She said, "What? I've believed in you and taken refuge in this for so many years. <laughs> and if she just smiles and says, yeah okay, <laughs> whatever you say, then I think maybe it's true. So that's actually how we find out. But just to finish off this talk, I'm not, again I'm sure many of you know the story, you know the time when I became enlightened? Do you want to hear that story? (laughs) Again. (laughs) Sometimes people ask me, are you enlightened, Ajahn Brahm? I'll tell you you the time when I became enlightened. I thought. (laughs) It was my fourth year as a monk. And I was in this forest monastery actually more, basically in the middle of nowhere and it was an ordinary monastery but the abbot there, the teacher, he was amazing because one of the things I noticed with him, I've never seen this with anybody else, I hope, you know, I never do this, sometimes he would start giving a talk and then he would fall asleep Then suddenly he would wake up <laughs> and then he'd carry on the talk, you know, from like, even like he finished half his sentence before he fell asleep, and then he fell asleep, and the rest of the sentence would be completed when he came up again. It was just like he didn't know that he was unconscious for a while. <laughs> but that was difficult for us because we never knew when he was going to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to stay there. <laughs> but anyway, so um, so it was range retreat. And didn't have many duties really getting some nice meditation and on the moon nights was it a moon night No, I couldn't have been because I was um, it was sometimes it would rain but anyway I had lots of good energy so I was meditating you know sitting down and walking and sitting down and walking you know and sometimes you know you can really get you know your meditation really hot it's really beautiful meditation it gets easier and easier and easier, more and more bliss, more and more depth, and it was after a nice deep meditation I was on the walking meditation path, must have been about one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock or something, and then as I was walking all these incredible insights came. I didn't look for them, they were just pouring in until the big one came. The inside into everything. Oh, that was amazing! And as I was walking, there just so much energy was up in my mind, and I realised there was another enlightened being in Thailand, and I went to the um, the the hall just to sit no sloth and torpor at all, no restlessness, a perfectly poised mind, so much bliss, it was all so easy. And then I thought that I should have some rest, so I went up to my heart, not to sleep, just to stretch my back, and then, there's no way I'm going to go to sleep with so much energy and clarity in my mind, so I almost got up after 5 or 10 minutes and went to the hall. The bell usually went for the morning meeting at three AM. And I was already sitting there by three AM. And many of those mornings it was in the the jungles, I was sleep deprived of course, but I had so much energy I was sitting there. No sloth and torpor at all. It was just so easy to meditate. And even when we did our morning chanting, you know, things like yours, know, so, I never chanted I'm so Bhagawan. I had so much energy, <laughs> I couldn't stop that. And then after the chanting, we got ready to go on arms route. And as I was going on alms round in the village, wow, I was zapping every person who gave some rice into my bowl, and I was thinking, you don't know how lucky you are, this morning you're giving rice. To a newly enlightened Western monk. <laughs> 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 and I was just full of bliss. And when I, we finally, after the alms round, got to the monastery, there was something else which I, actually, for the whole range routine, I never saw again that someone had bought. Usually we had just one pot of curry to go with the rice. This day there were two pots. And the usual pot of curry we had every day was the rotten fish curry. Uh, to explain what it is, there would catch the fish in the paddy fields the year before, they would put it in earthen jars, a bit of plastic on top, and leave it there to go rotten they like the smell. Sometimes we do that. Blue cheese, uh, kimchi or something, I don't know, but anyway, fish which people have, the more rotten and smelly it is, the more they like it. So anyway, that was the rotten fish curry every day. But this curry in the other pot was a pork curry. It was something which you would call edible. I thought, where's that come from? And then I concluded, the heavenly beings have noticed as a new enlightened one. And so they've also come to celebrate. <laughs> and when I sat there in the line, and I had my rice and was waiting for the courage to be passed down. I was a number two monk, so the head monk had his share first of all. It's no exaggeration. He, he was a local boy. He, he was actually born in that village. He grew up on rotten fish curry. I thought he liked it. But then he took this ladle and this whopping big spoons of pork curry into his bowl. No one could eat that much. T- now three big spoon loads into his bowl. I didn't mind, you know, because there's plenty left for the newly enlightened monk. But what he did next was just incredible, it was unbelievable. Having taken his own, he didn't never took any, pork, any uh, rotten fish curry that morning, he just took up the pot of rotten fish curry and poured it into the pot of pork curry, got the ladle and stirred it all up together, saying it's all the same. It's all the same. And I thought, if it's all the same, why do you take yours first? <laughs> and I was so upset and angry at his behavior. But then, I, re- I realized almost immediately, enlightened beings don't get upset at what other people do. <laughs> they don't mind what they eat, enlightened beings. And I realized, oh my goodness, I'm not enlightened after all. <laughs> and at that, that was one of the most depressing warnings I've ever had. When you think you're enlightened, you find out you're not. <laughs> and anyway, I took the mixture of of pork and rotten fish and put it in my... I didn't mind what I ate now. But not because I was enlightened, because I was depressed. <laughs> but it really showed me just how... If you want to know what enlightenment is or if someone else is enlightened, give them some really terrible curry to eat (laughs) and see if they can stomach it, (laughs) see what they do. So anyway, an enlightened person is you don't have any wishes anymore, no wants, you're perfectly content and you know it. So that's how you can understand what enlightenment is. The ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Not just greed, I and mean, greed is just too intense. Wanting, ill will, and delusion. So, anyway, so if anybody thinks they're in line, please come over here and, <laughs> 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 and I'll tell you how stupid. <laughs> Singaporeans can't get in line. <laughs> So anyway, I was going to talk about something totally different this morning, but there it is, it's nine o'clock, so I hope you enjoyed that. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.